Hi, I'm Juan Zapata, a production assistant here at C-SPAN. The Afterwards podcast is taking a Thanksgiving break this week, but we wanted to showcase one of our other podcasts, Book Notes Plus. Afterwards, we'll be back in this feed next week. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The Great Stewardess Rebellion. How Women Launched a Workplace Revolution at 30,000 Feet. This is a book by Nell McShane Wolfhart. She wrote the New York Times column Carry On from 2016 to 2019. In the introduction to her book, Ms. McShane Wolfhart says, quote, It wouldn't be much of an exaggeration to say that in the 1960s, the airplane cabin was the most sexist workplace in America. Since then, the flight attendant's achievements are, even from today's perspective, remarkable, the author states. She goes on to say, since the 60s, they forced the airlines to promote them alongside men, to pay them fairly, to treat them as legitimate workers. Nell McShane, Wolfhart, why a book on stewardesses? Well, everyone loves a stewardess, right? I, uh, when I first heard about this idea, and it had a lot of things that really interest me, right? It was about feminism. It was about the labor movement. But it also had this added bonus of being about stewardesses. And I feel like everyone is just captivated by that image and the thought of like what a stewardess's life was like. And I think it's really uh, it's something that captures everyone's imagination. Who is Pat? Pat is she's the heroine of my book. She is a woman who became an American Airlines stewardess at the age of 19. And she went from being somebody whose biggest dream in life was to become a stewardess supervisor to becoming a militant union leader and somebody who kind of led a, a revolution in the labor movement. Where did you find her? I was, I used to have a column in the New York Times travel section where I interviewed celebrities and I interviewed Adam Conover who had a television show where he did myth busting. And one of the episodes he did was about the golden age of travel. And it was all about you know, this idea of Don Draper and cocktails in first class and this incredibly glamorous lifestyle. But it was also about this workers' revolution that was happening behind the scenes. And Pat Gibbs was one of the people who led it. So he introduced me to her. How did Pat Gibbs get into the stewardess business? She had an overbearing mother and a sort of chaotic family. And she was 19 and she wanted to get the hell away from it all. And the idea of being a stewardess back in 1961 was incredibly aspirational. Like, it was harder to get into Harvard than it was to get a job. I'm sorry, it was harder to get a job at TWA than it was to get into Harvard. That was like a common saying. It was this idea of independence, flying all around the country, living on your own. And, you know, there was like a, a lot of sex appeal to it also, the idea that you would be you know, dating a man in San Francisco and having dinner with him and the next morning flying to New York for a day of sightseeing. It was this incredibly aspirational, glamorous job. And so Pat absolutely bought into it and off she went. Where did she go and how did she get into it? She went to Dallas-Fort Worth for her interview at American Airlines. Uh, they rejected her initially because she had a gap between her front teeth so they sent her home, she went to the dentist, she got some braces, wore them for a few months, and then she went back. And the, then when she was hired, she was sent to the American Airlines Stewardess College in Dallas-Fort Worth, which was where all the trainees in the 60s went. Actually, that's where they still go. And it's a six-week-long training program that was all about how to serve passengers in the airplane and how to conduct an emergency exit. But it was mostly about how to look the part, how to put on your makeup properly, how to do your hair in a certain way, how to wear a girdle. It was required to wear a girdle, how to walk in high heels. Um, and it was known colloquially, and I think it still is, not as the American Airlines Stewardess College, but as the Charm Farm. What did, did she have any trouble 
getting approved and how many get approved in those days that applied? She, her main problem was before she went to the interview, she knew she had to lose weight because there are incredibly strict weight restrictions and you had to be extremely slim to get a job as a stewardess, even to get an interview. So she went on sort of a crash diet before she went out for her first interview and then she got the braces and then she was considered like fit to be a stewardess. Um, and after that, it was mostly a question of following all the rules and going through, you know, making sure that you looked perfect every day in from your nail polish to your hair to your girdle. What was the reaction of her mother when she went through this at the time? <laughs> um, her mother was sort of a showboat, um, I think. And that was kind of one of the reasons that Pat wanted to, to get away, is that her mother was wanted to be on television and had her own sort of TV show uh, sponsored by an appliance store. So I think that she was, she was, I mean, she also had a number of other children. So I think she was happy enough with it. Um, Pat wasn't going to be any competition for her. When she graduated, what happened then? She was sent to her first base, and her base was Dallas-Fort Worth. So she moved into an apartment. Um, most stewardesses lived with a bunch of other stewardesses because they weren't paid very much. And so they'd be four to five to an apartment, two to three to a room, and they called these apartments stew zoos. <laughs> they, were, they were usually big apartment buildings near the airport filled with stewardesses. Um, and then, yeah, she started working back in those days in the early 60s. It was a lot of um, short hops. You know, even today, if you're a flight attendant, the dream job, the dream schedule is long flights because you're paid per hour you're in the air. And so you want like a very long flight as much as possible. You don't want to be going like between New York City and Syracuse eight times a day. But she was starting out. And so she was doing those short hops, you know, up in the air, serve some fried chicken, a brownie, a glass of milk, down again, up in the air, serve the same meal, down again over and over again. In those early days in the 60s, uh, how diverse was the stewardess world? <laughs> uh, I, there were almost no people of color in the stewardess world in the early 60s. That changed gradually throughout the decade, and by the 70s, it got to be even more. And then, of course, in the early 70s, we got men working as, as stewards. But it was incredibly white. When you look at advertisements from that time, um, they talk about, you know, that are photos of, of the stewardesses, they are all, they look identical. They're all slim, conventionally attractive, very young white women. And if you were a black woman and you wanted to be a stewardess, the makeup didn't work for you. The makeup they had at the Charm Farm. The pantyhose was the wrong color. No one knew how to do your hair. Like you were totally on your own when it came to those things. It was extremely isolating. What were they, and at the time they called them the girls, what were the girls supposed to do on the planes in relationship to the passengers. Were there any instructions? Yeah, I mean, the main target then, probably it's still true today, was the male business traveler. That was like the number one passenger. So everything in the plane was about creating the perfect experience for the male business passenger. And that, that was whether that's about bringing him his favorite cocktail or cooking a steak to the right temperature, bringing him a pillow for his back, talking to him if he wants to talk, not talking to him if he doesn't want to talk. It was a real, at least in the in the 60s through the mid-60s, it was about treating the passengers as if you were their mother in a lot of ways. But, of course, a mother who was under the age of 32, because that was the age at which you were fired. Fired at 32. Most people didn't actually make it to 32, because if you got married, you were also fired. Or if you had children, you were fired. And the, t the turnover was extremely high. Like most stewardesses would start at the age of 19 or 20, work for a few years, and then get married and, and disappear. But if you had somehow managed to avoid either having children or getting married, when you turned 32, you would be, you would be fired because they didn't want you on the plane anymore. Too old. What did the airlines do if they found out you were pregnant and not married? There was a little bit of, there was some consensus that the airlines would occasionally help you to get an abortion, um, which was still illegal at that time. Um, but I haven't, and I think in some cases that was true, but I don't have any like real evidence of that. But if you were pregnant and you told your supervisor you were pregnant, like that was it, you would just be on your way out the door. And this actually forced a lot of women to get back alley abortions because they knew that they would lose their job if they turned up pregnant at work. 
What happened if you were seen on a day to be overweight? <laughs> this to me is one of the most humiliating things I can imagine. Um, the scales, weight was a very important thing. Your weight was regulated according to how tall you were, and you had to be, be maintain a very slim physique at all times. And in the airport, there's a room called operations, which for, say, American Airlines would be like a huge room, lots of offices around it, pilots coming in and out, supervisors in and out, huge. This is where the stewardesses waited for their flights, where they picked up their mail, huge operations center. Scale is right in the middle of it. And any supervisor or even a pilot could grab any stewardess and put her on the scale whenever they wanted. And so it was sort of used as a tool of terror to really keep the women as slim as possible because it's, you know, it's a humiliating experience. And if you were over your allowed weight, you could be pulled right off the flight and you would generally be given a couple of weeks to lose the weight and get back down to your to your permitted weight before you were allowed to fly again. In your book, I read mostly about American Airlines, United Airlines, TWA, Pan Am, some Braniff, some national airlines. Was there a difference among these airlines on how they treated women stewardesses? Yes. Uh, the international airlines, the, the Air American at that time didn't fly, fly internationally, nor did Braniff, nor did most of them. TWA and Pan Am were the airlines that flew overseas. And they generally had more relaxed regulations when it came to both getting married and getting older. Um, and each of the airlines that flew domestically, Eastern or uh, American or United, they had their own set of regulations. Um, so, you know, weight would be different and, and age would be different, but not by very much. They all had really, really strong weight restrictions in place. They all had rules about not flying past a certain age. It was just it was just a little leeway in how many pounds and how many years. Before we continue on the book, tell us, where are you today? Um, I'm in Montevideo, Uruguay. I've been living here for about eight years, but I'm originally from Philadelphia. Why Uruguay? Well, before I started writing this book, I was a travel writer, also before the pandemic. <laughs> and I've been living abroad my, my entire adult life. I, I like to move around a lot. But I'm in Uruguay specifically because my partner actually got a job here. And what are you doing besides writing this book? Do you have a regular job? No, writing a book, it turns out, is a full-time job. <laughs> it takes all of your time and attention. Um, and so that has been what I've been primarily been occupied with for the past couple of years. Where'd you grow up? Philadelphia. Where'd you go to school? To college? Yeah. Uh, I went to college in Dublin. I went to Trinity College. My mother is, is from Northern Ireland, so it was a lot cheaper for me to go to school in Ireland than it would have been to go in the United States. And also, it was very enjoyable. When did you develop your interest in writing? Uh, I've always been a reader. And I think that's the answer most writers would give you, is that like if you're somebody who grew up reading voraciously, that you have a natural ability to write that just comes with the, you know, with the territory. Um, and it was something I was always naturally good at and came reasonably easily to me. So when it came to building a career as a travel writer and then to writing a book, it, was, it made sense. It was a good fit. So how did you get this idea of doing a book and how long did you have to think it through and find how long did it take you to find a Pat Gibbs and a lot of the other Tommy and Sonia and all the others that you write about in the book? Well, once I did that interview with Adam Conover for the New York Times, I actually remember saying to him on the phone as he was telling me about this, I was like, that sounds like it would make a great book. And then I just sort of ran with the idea. I'm I take action pretty quickly. If I get a good idea, I like to move on it right away. So I dove right into the research. I conducted many, 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 many hours of phone interviews. And later I would go visit them all in person and conduct in-person interviews, which was really a pleasure. Um, and I spent about six months working on the book proposal with my agent. And then I think about a year and a half writing the book. Um, but a good amount of the research and the, you know, the, the base work was already finished during the proposal time. When did you write the column Carry On with the New York Times? And what was it usually about? You said celebrities, but what was the point of the column? <laughs> this was the best gig I have ever had. Uh, it ran from 2016 to 2019 in the travel section of the New York Times. And it was basically just calling up celebrities and asking what they brought with them in their carry-on luggage, which it's sort of been a feature of media for a while now, like what's in your handbag, what's in your suitcase, all sorts of things. But 
I can't get enough of those stories. I love to know what's in somebody's handbag. And it was just a good way to like bring some celebrities to the to the section and like liven it up a little bit. And also just to to learn about the very weird and wonderful things that people travel with. Give us a couple of examples. Um, I think one of the smartest ones, A.D. Bryant from Saturday Night Live, she traveled with her own colorful pillowcase so that if she was like talking to someone on FaceTime or Zoom from a hotel room, she would have this like smiley face background or like a very colorful fabric background that I that I thought was really uh, like a fun and homey sort of thing to add a little color to the hotel room. I thought that was kind of nice. And uh, somebody brought a folding flower vase. That like then they would, you know, if they were in Mexico City, they would walk around and buy flowers and then come back to the hotel and they'd have this little vase that they could just open up and put the flowers in and make the hotel room seem nice. You have some ad copy in the book and some photos of ads that the airlines had back in those days in the 60s. I want to run one. This one is from Southwest Airlines and people who won't be able to see it should envision a stewardess in a short skirt or mini outfit of some kind. I think it was orange, standing on a runway with airplanes flying over her head. It's not very long. This is from 1971. Let's watch it. Remember what it was like before there was somebody else up there who loved you? There was no such thing as executive class service to Dallas, Houston, and San Antonio. With first-class legroom, free cocktails for everyone, and a schedule you could depend on. So what were they selling in that ad? (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, for those people who haven't seen that ad, this stewardess is wearing the shortest pair of hot pants anyone has ever seen and lace up go-go boots. So if you can picture yourself wearing that outfit, serving hot coffee to a plane full of 150 people, I mean, you're you're a better stewardess than I would be. Um, It took a turn, sort of. We talked earlier about how in the 60s, the ads were all about caring for the passengers and really treating them like almost like a child, giving them whatever they wanted, coddling them, pampering them. And then as the airlines get into the 70s and there's like sexual liberation, and they're also trying to differentiate um, themselves from the other. You know, each airline is trying to develop a personality. And they realize that the best way to do this is through their stewardesses because, you know, their safety records are the same. Their destinations are mostly the same. But they each sort of narrow in on these different kinds of women that they like to hire in terms of what they look like, their face and their body and what kind of uniforms they put them in. And the 70s see this slew of ads that are all about the sexy stewardess and how you get on this plane and she's going to do whatever you want. And it's going to be this like very a lot of double entendres, a lot of very like a lot of uh, innuendo in all of these ads. Um, And as you can imagine, the not every stewardess enjoyed that. Well, here's one more. This one is from National Airlines, which no longer exists. It merged. Uh, And this is from 1974. And it's Judy. And Judy's driving. And she's at the beach eventually. And she takes her trousers off and has a bikini on and heads to the water. That's what you would see if you heard this commercial. Everything you've heard about us Miami girls is true. We're always on the move. I'm Judy. And I was born to fly. Fly me to Houston. National has non-stop DC-10s every day. Or fly me to New Orleans on the only DC-10s. You can fly me morning, afternoon, or night. Just say when. I'm Judy, and I was born to fly. Fly me. Fly Judy. Fly National. Now, that's uh, long after Pat started as a stewardess, but what was the reaction uh, among the people you talked to when that ad started to run? The Fly Me campaign really kicked off something because there had been these sort of like sexy stewardess ads for a while. They were becoming very common. But the Fly Me campaign was huge. There were T-shirts, there were mugs, there were baseball caps. Like one of the big ads was just a, a photo of a woman's face, a real working stewardess, by the way. Her name was Cheryl. And the ad just said, Fly Me. I'm Cheryl. Fly Me. And that was the whole ad. Um, And then there were follow-up ads, like millions of people flew me last year, or you can fly me to Florida, all using pictures of real working stewardesses and their real names. And the Fly Me campaign 
It didn't bother every stewardess. A lot of stewardesses kind of enjoyed the, you know, the idea of this. It added to the glamour of the job to be seen as this like super sexy person flying all around. But a lot of women, as you can imagine, hated that their employers were sort of pimping them out to sell tickets. And the Fly Me campaign caused a lot of picketing. Uh, the, the ad agency that came up with it was based in New York. And so the stewardesses would go out there and picket the ad agency. And actually, so did members of NOW, the National Organization for Women. So they went to the ad agency. They were out there with signs. Um, and instead of saying, you know, fly me, the sign said, go fly yourself. And what, one of my favorite stories is that the owner of the ad agency, his name was Bill, he came out to these protesters and he tried to sort of appease them by handing them flowers which was a misguided move that meant they just went home. They made new signs that came back and said, I'm Bill, fire me. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a, a very powerful and really well-known campaign. When did life start to change for Pat and others that she was around in the, in the uh, business? Uh, the first half of my book <clears throat> deals with a lot of these things. During the 60s, uh, the main battles were to get rid of things like the no marriage rule and the no kids rule and they get fired get and be fired at age 32 rule. So there are, it's actually really dramatic. There are like court cases, there are hearings, there's like intense negotiations at the bargaining table between the union and the airlines. But it's something that happens step by step. And a lot of the times it's, you know, two steps forward, one step back because the airlines are determined for as long as possible to keep the people in the job, all female, all young, all slim, all conventionally attractive like it was just in their best interest to do that um but through a lot of different machinations and pretty ingenious ideas pat and her colleagues uh bring down a lot of these rules um including some a lot of hard work from the women at the equal employment opportunity commission and as we're coming into the 70s the rules are much more about appearance now things like the weight limit and women weren't allowed to wear glasses uh and they were put in you know these ludicrous uniforms there, there were the hot pants that we that we heard of earlier but there were also things like paper uniforms twa for a while introduced uniforms made out of paper and of course they, they tore they ripped they got stains they, they didn't last very long and i think my favorite example is when american airlines introduced a sort of frontier look which was a tartan miniskirt a tartan vest and a daniel boone style raccoon cap so it's it's not exactly what you want to wear when you're standing at the front of the plane trying to get the passengers to take you seriously and listen to the safety demonstration. I'm looking at an ad in your book from United Airlines. I'm going to read it. And the only way to describe it is you have a, a young, attractive, she actually has dark hair. It's a black and white ad. And she is pinning a boutonniere on a man uh, who's not exactly a, a matinee idol. He's uh, older, heavy glasses so people can envision that and it says we we hope you had a pleasant flight we tried to make it so uh it arrived on time you ate well you went to sleep after dinner why not you work hard when the flight landed the stewardesses smiled goodbye like she really meant it she does she even straightened your boutonniere you get this kind of extra care every time you fly with us come back soon comment from you? <laughs> United Airlines for a while, actually, they had a tagline at the bottom of each one of their ads that said, she's going to make someone a great wife. So <laughs> it's like, it was really all about, like I said, service and taking care of these men and making sure that they felt like they were the only passenger on the plane. Um, and yeah, it's, it comes a little bit with, with the idea of respect, right? And that like the stewardesses knew they were on the planes to save lives, to make sure that everybody who got on the plane at the beginning got off the plane at the end. But the passengers thought, and they were encouraged to think by these airlines, by their own employers, to think that the stewardesses were there literally to be flying Playboy bunnies. How much did they make? Um, I would say it's hard to put it into today's dollars, maybe like in like 30,000 something, 40,000 something. It's a, it's difficult to say because it depends on your schedule. It depends on your seniority. It, it really fluctuates a lot, but the wages were always an issue. The stewardesses were usually the lowest paid airline employees, obviously much lower than the executives, but also lower than the mechanics and the ground crew and the cleaning crew. 
Um, and this is one of the things that they were that they were trying to fight um, in their union negotiations because they felt that they were not being taken seriously as workers. They were really considered more like mascots. What about the single room controversy? This is so interesting to me because I feel like if you think about the labor movement and you look at the fights that people are having in the labor movement right now, sometimes the thing the employers are upset about is never the thing that the outsider would think was upsetting. So there were so many things the stewardesses could and and were upset about, but this was about a contract that happened in the early 70s, um, and it was over single rooms on layovers. Uh, at this point, men had started working on the airlines, and when the flight crew arrived somewhere, they had a layover at a hotel, the man always got his own room to stay in while the women had to share and, they, you know, to, to cut costs. And they had always had to share. Like, they would, the crew would arrive at the desk to check in. The pilots would saunter off with their keys to their own rooms. The stewardesses always had to sleep two to a room. So this bothered them. But it bothered them even more when these newbie men start coming on the planes and then they get their own room. And these women who have been working for 10 years longer than him still have to share rooms. And this was something the company did not want to give in on. They didn't want to give these single rooms to the, the stewardesses. It was going to be too expensive. They, you know, they they wanted them to share. And the stewardesses union representatives, they were affiliated to the transport workers union. And the leadership of the Transport Workers Union looked pretty much like the leadership of American Airlines, you know, a bunch of older white men um, who were not all that interested in dealing with what the stewardesses wanted. And they felt that their representatives weren't fighting for the single room thing. So this is actually a, a point of high drama in the book uh, when they they agree, you know, the company comes back with a contract. It gives them some things they don't they, they still don't get the single rooms. And the stewardesses vote down the contract and they vote it down two times before they finally get what they want, which is single rooms. And I think this is just one of the things that like, you know, from the outside, we would be thinking wages, pensions, benefits, this stuff is way more important. But when it came to the day to the day, sorry, the day to day work of the job, the single room thing was the thing that felt like the most, uh, you know, took away from their dignity and their respect as workers and they fought for it and they won. You have some details on the single room thing that I found uh, interesting. Um, one of them was that you, in some cases, the stewardess would come from another flight, get to the room, and that caused a difficulty because somebody had already been asleep, the other person. The idea that they somebody snored, so they ended up having to sleep in the bathtub. <clears throat> and then one more, which is probably the hardest to read, was the relationship that the white stewardesses had with the black stewardesses and explain all that and and why that was even an issue. Yeah. I mean, when you ended up with sharing a room with someone, it could be someone from, from another flight and maybe you would have to like stay awake to let them into the room or you'd be, as you said, reading your book in the bathtub because you couldn't sleep, but the other woman was sleeping or she kept you awake because she was snoring all sorts of things that come with sharing a room with, with anybody, (laughs) much less a total stranger. But yeah, there was, I mean, you know, it was, uh, racism was a huge problem. And when black stewardesses started flying, a lot of white stewardesses did not want to share rooms with them. They would, you know, when they checked into the hotel room, the white stewardess might like rush to use the bathroom or the shower first. So she wouldn't have to use it after the black woman had already used it. Um, And I mean, there are multiple incidents like this. I, I talked to a number of black stewardesses for this book and they, they're, experiences even even some of them actually happened very recently are like really horrifying so what really broke that then and what year was it when they got the single room that was 1976 that was like the big showdown over single rooms um yeah that was i mean it was it was a huge huge incident at the time and it involved a uh, some some humorous incidents, I think, also, which people will find in the book. But it was 76 where they finally got that resolved. What was effective, though? How did they, in your opinion, I know you said they voted the, the contract down twice. Was there anything else that, that uh, forced them to give them single rooms? It was, no, it was a voting down of the contract. I, I also should make this clear for people who don't know that much about negotiations or, you know, bargaining or things like that, that voting down a contract, like, People spend years putting together a contract. So your union reps 
and the management of the company might spend years negotiating all the terms of your contract. And this happens every three years. So you're almost always in negotiations over who pays for the uniforms or whether you get single rooms or what the wages are going to be. Like it is a big deal. It takes over your life. And uh, they, so to vote down a contract after all this time has been put in is huge. Like, and it was really unprecedented that they voted it down because they felt so passionate, like that what they wanted and what they were telling their union reps that they needed was not being taken seriously by any of the men in charge. We found some video of a woman who had been a stewardess on YouTube. They don't identify her. It was a documentary interview done by a man named David Hoffman. But it makes a point. I'm going to run it and get your reaction to this. First of all, telling my parents that I was going to be a stewardess, they were appalled at the idea. And then I went back to my high school and... I went to a Catholic high school, and I told the um, the head nun that I was going to be a stewardess, and I thought she was going to just fall right off of her chair. She thought it was the worst thing in the world that I could possibly be doing, and that I was damned to a life of sin, and I was going to hell. The airlines used the stewardess as an advertising uh, gimmick that um, would lure male passengers. Um, we had a, a flight that went from Newark to Chicago, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and if you were not a man, you could not book on that flight. Uh, it was an all-men's flight. We gave out free liquor, free cigars, and little prizes. It was, it was a gimmick, and the stewardesses on that flight were part of the gimmick uh, to attract the passengers. Now, how long did that last? <laughs> I don't think the men-only flights actually lasted all that long, although I have a vague memory that somebody tried to resuscitate that idea maybe like 10 years ago and tried to implement something like that. Um, there was also Hooters Airlines for a while. They <laughs> might actually still be in business. Um, so, yeah, there's been a number, <laughs> a number of things like this over the years. Um, and, yeah, the men, but the men-only flight were were a real thing, and I can't imagine – any woman really wanting to work those flights. But uh, it's actually, it's not the worst gimmick I've ever heard. I think the most astounding one for me was when, for a brief period back in the 70s, American Airlines removed like the last 20 rows of the plane. And instead they created a piano bar and they put like a real piano at the back of the plane. And this is the worst part. Any passenger could like get up from their seat and go back to the piano bar and play the piano and sing along while they accompanied themselves. And to me, like I would just I would just have to open the emergency door and jump out at that <laughs> point if I if a stranger started doing that on my flight. What was the hardest part of writing this book? Uh, I did a tremendous amount of research, which actually I, I like the research. It, it wasn't that onerous, uh, the most, but it wasn't nearly as fun as talking to the women in the book. Um, I really tried to tell the story through the development of a couple of a couple strong characters, and those people were so interesting and so fun and such compelling, fascinating women that it was just like I mean they've all become friends. Like it's just really was such a pleasure to talk to them and spend time with them. Um, so yeah, I think the, the research could be hard because a lot of it is reading through like airline contracts from 1968, but that was definitely offset by the, the sort of personalities of the people I talked to and also the, the fun things that I discovered, like some of the ads that, that you've shown and the ones that, uh, that I've put in the book, like the print ads, like the ones that are so horrifying that you kind of have to laugh so you don't cry. Yeah. Like this one, um, fly in quote marks, foreign, foreign accent with us and forget about counting the hours. We make a new thing of every time first class and coach, beginning with our special foreign accent hostesses. They're ruffles, bows, and minis, and sheer delight in being girls, as well as expert hostesses, make something wonderful happen inside the plane. Atmosphere. 
<laughs> Actually, those uniforms, uh, which were sort of like Manhattan penthouse and Italian toga, those were the paper uniforms that I referred to earlier. Those uniforms were actually made of paper. Um, but yeah, it's like that was just one of the gimmicks. Like, okay, we're going to play Italian music. We're going to serve Italian food. We're going to dress all the stewardesses in Italian outfits. Like, this was just one of the the many the many interesting ideas the airlines came up with to to sell tickets. Is all this gone? That's a really good question. It's mostly gone. Um, I mean, I feel like on some airplanes now, you don't even get a packet of peanuts or biscuits, much less like a special outfit on the stewardess or, you know, music playing in the background. Um, so I would think, yeah, it's, it's almost all gone. Um, there are, like, I do think there is still a Hooters airline that does have some things maybe that are extracurricular, but uh, I'm not sure if that's still in existence. I would say for the most part, those those gimmicks are gone, but I wouldn't be surprised if they came back. How did the male pilots treat the stewardesses in those early days, or even today for that matter? Yeah, yeah. Um, they treated them sort of like the passengers treated them and like the supervisors treated them uh, essentially as servants. And there was, you know, they would ask, you know, order them to bring them coffee. They wouldn't bother introducing themselves. They never learned the names of the women. They just called them, you know, sweetie or honey or something like that. Um, and also, you know, for for a lot of the period that is covered in my book, the stewardesses are required to wear girdles under their uniforms. And anybody, including a pilot, could conduct a girdle check at any point, which was, the stewardesses called it a free feel. Um, just kind of like a flick on the butt to make sure they were wearing the girdle. And so the pilots could exercise that right whenever they felt like it. What were the rules about interaction between pilots and stewardesses? That's a good question. I don't actually know. I think that I don't know. Actually, I don't know the answer to that. Because you do refer to situations where a pilot and a stewardess would have um, an affair and there'd be a pregnancy and the pilot wouldn't want any responsibility and all that. Do you remember any of that? Yes, but I don't think that was regulated by the airline. That was more like if there was a pregnancy, the woman knew she would lose her job. So that would be an issue. Or if the pilot was married, he didn't, you know, he wanted to get as far away from that situation as possible. Those are more like interpersonal issues with those kinds of relationships. I don't actually know how they were regulated by the airline. Possibly not at all. Who is Sonia? Sonia Pressman is uh, like the third character, main character in my book. She is a... She's still around. She lives in Sarasota. She is a tiny little uh, Jewish lady who was actually a refugee from Germany in the 1930s. And she became the first woman attorney in the general counsel's office at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And the reason she is relevant to my book is because she wrote a major decision that said that these age and marriage rules that the airlines were trying so hard to hold on to were in violation of the Civil Rights Act and they had to be, you know, the airlines had to get rid of them. Um, and her own story, she has a very interesting life story, actually. She, she's written her own, her own, her own book, um, but she's like a very strong personality and she had this impact on the stewardess fights uh, from a legal perspective. One of the things that seemed interesting, though, is that she actually... I don't, this is a strong word, in cahoots with these women and would meet with them. She was a federal government employee, but would meet with them trying to figure out a way to break, break this situation and change it. That's actually not quite accurate. Her meetings, her clandestine meetings, were actually with the members of the National Organization for Women, um, of which she was a founding member. And she would... Uh, the issue for Sonia was that at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, when they opened their doors, they only dealt with racial discrimination. And that was essentially what everyone expected them to do. That's why it was set up. But the stewardesses were actually first on the doorstep, lodging complaint after complaint after complaint about the way they were being treated by the airlines. And no one was paying any attention to these complaints. They just kept stacking up. But the EEOC didn't want to deal with it at all. So Sonia just thought it wasn't fair. Um, I'm not sure she's ever been in cahoots with anybody in her whole life. She's very black and white. She really sees right and wrong very clearly. And she could just see that, like, these women were complaining. The airlines were treating them terribly and breaking the law. And she wanted to change that. So she did pass some information from the EEOC 
from what was going on, you know, Intel, inside Intel, as to what was going on there and how the stewardess complaints were being disregarded. She passed that on to the National Organization for Women, um, to people who then did something about it. But I don't think she even had any real interactions with stewardesses. She mostly just could see that they weren't getting a fair deal and decided to do something about it. You have a lot of organizations that you reference and people. We haven't come close to <laughs> dealing with all this. I mean, I've got a whole list here from the ACLU to the EEOC to now to the APFA. What was the APFA? The APFA is the Association of Professional Flight Attendants, and um, that is an independent union of American Airlines flight attendants that this happens sort of at the climax of the book um, when the flight attendants decide to leave the Transport Workers Union, form their own independent woman-led union. And that union is still in business today. They have, I think, around 26,000 members. Um, and yeah, they're still they're still functioning. What was the relationship of the stewardesses and the Transport Workers Union? So the Transport Workers Union you know, to which the stewardesses were affiliated was mostly made up of, you know, subway workers and bus drivers and, you know, transportation workers. And there was a real divide between them and the stewardesses uh, in the 60s and 70s because a lot of the members, you know, the bus drivers and the subway workers, they were, you know, uh, men who had wives who didn't work outside the home. And they had a very, they maybe a more traditional idea of what women's lives should be like. And the stewardesses came in and wanted to be treated as real workers doing a real important job, working as safety professionals. And a lot of the members of the transport workers unions didn't really have time for that. Like, you know, the women were going to be out of there anyway once they got married or they, you know, got old. They they weren't really considered real workers. And the transport workers union leadership, when it came to bargaining, they, they really went all out for the airline mechanics uh, and for the airline pilots and for the ground crews. But when it came to getting the stewardesses what they wanted at the bargaining table, they just didn't think it was that important. So it was contentious. Who was Tommy? Tommy Hutto Blake is the second heroine of my story. She is from Texas. She was a social justice worker um, in the late 60s and early 70s. And she decided to become a stewardess. She thought she'd just do it for a few years, and then she'd go back to social justice work. Um, but she retired from being a stewardess at the age of 61. So <laughs> she really committed to it, and she was there for about 40 years. Um, she and Pat are sort of their sort of counterparts throughout the book. You know, Pat is becomes a, a militant labor leader and somebody who is, like, always against the company and filing grievances and really, like, standing up in a very... Uh, aggressive way for the workers. And Tommy's more of a peacemaker and a negotiator, but what they both want is the same thing. They want the stewardesses to get real workers' rights, um, but they get there to, in two very different ways and not without a considerable amount of conflict. Did the airlines ever stop uh, the weight requirement for flight attendants? Great question. That is not... It is still sort of in flux. During the 90s, there were a lot of battles over this, and I think even court cases um, where airlines were still firing firing stewardesses when they got too heavy, and then the union, you know, filing grievances. There was a lot of back and forth. And in a lot of airlines today, the weight limit has been replaced by, like, a performance test, and it's like, okay, if you can get down the aisle, if you can lift off the emergency door, if you can lift up this chair, if you can do all those things, we're not going to weigh you anymore, which I think is is far better. Like, that's the only thing that makes sense. Um, but I think there are a few airlines, especially some international airlines, that still have our weight requirement. What about all the other things, the white gloves, uh, the uniforms, the hair, uh, all the things that uh, started bothering some of these flight attendants in the early years. That's something that Pat did a lot of work on. She filed a lot of grievances over things like you had to wear nail polish that was not chipped and it was in like a certain color or eye eyeshadow in a certain color or some airlines even mandated wearing fake eyelashes. You know, she she raised those problems again and again and she she got scored a lot of wins. But if you can like look through sort of a a handbook now over what a flight attendant, like even in, you know, in the year 2022 of the way they have to present themselves, the kind of luggage they can carry, the uniform they have to wear, like 
everything is sketched out in incredible detail. Like those looks are really, really, really regulated. Uh, you know, the, this, the size of the heel on your shoe, like from top to toe, everything has some kind of rule around it. It's, 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 there's more flexibility than there used to be. And there's a lot more comfort than there used to be. Um, you know, flight attendants can rack up like eight miles of walking on one flight. So when they won the ability to wear flat shoes and not heels, that was a huge thing. Um, but they're, they're still incredibly, incredibly tightly regulated what they can and cannot wear. I'm looking at another ad. It's sometimes hard to read. It's the, the print's so small on the ad. But the head, this is an American Airlines ad. And it's uh, the headline on it is, think of her as your mother. I assume you remember that. She only wants what's best for you. A cool drink, a good dinner, a soft pillow, and a warm blanket. I can go on, but uh, do you remember this ad? And <laughs> it says this that- is actually a very... Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, I just going to say it ends by saying that's the American way. Fly the American way. American Airlines. I think this ad is actually very confusing because when you look at the picture, like you can see it in my book, it's like a you know, very slim, conventionally beautiful woman sitting with her legs tucked under up under her on a chair in like a mini dress, gazing into the camera. It's almost seductive. But then, you know, the copy says, think of her like your mother. Um, so it's it's a little bit confusing, I think, in that way. But of course, you know, this was a great fodder for protests. And one of the ideas Pat had was to blow up this ad, think of her as your mother, and then write on the on the sign, would you fire your mother at 32? And she could use that as a picket sign to protest against the fact that they were getting fired at this at this young age. Here, here's another video moment. At, it, it's an ad um, in, in which it's graduation time. Uh, and this particular one, let me just double check, make sure it's uh, uh, United Airlines commercial back in the 60s. And there's a lot, if you could see, that there's a lot of emotion. Some of the the, at that time called stewardesses were crying because it was graduation day. Let's, you'll hear it, at least if you're my age, you'll hear a familiar male voice doing the ad. Let's listen. All my bags are packed. I'm ready to go. Graduation day at United Stewardess College. I hate to wake you up, but the dawn is breaking. It's early morning. It's a happy day for the girls and their parents. I'm so excited, just can't wait to fly. Kiss me and smile for me. Tell Above all, it's a day when the friendly skies become even friendlier. I'm leaving on a jet plane. One of the great radio voices has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but... When you saw that they were putting on their hats and this all this emotion and uh, did they do things like this anymore? <laughs> um, actually, the graduations, I think, look a little bit the same. You can even see photos <laughs> on Instagram if you follow some some airline accounts. Um, and a lot of it is it's, it's a lot of tradition built into it. Like there is a staircase at the American Airlines Stewardess College a.k.a. the Charm Farm. And every year, the graduating students lined up on that staircase and they took a picture. And these women, at least in the beginning, looked so alike that even Pat would look at her graduation photo and she she couldn't pick herself up like out of the lineup. She wasn't sure which one she was because they looked they looked so alike. But I think they still take those graduation photos on that staircase. And, you know, there there are a lot of traditions and, you know, people are proud to be flight attendants. Like it's a job with a lot of dignity. You are like a professional, a safety professional. And, you know, it's a really important job, especially as we saw during the pandemic. Like it really is essential work. Um, so, yeah, I think some of those traditions are really nice. Some of them I'm I'm happy that we've said goodbye to, though. You've got to tell this story. Uh, it's out of context of what we're talking about. But at, at, at one point, we learned that Pat is a lesbian. Mm-hmm. All right. Spoiler but, alert. Yes. Yeah. Well, but the reason I bring it up is because the story of her getting married to a man who, as I remember, well, you tell the story. I'm, I've gone. Yeah. This is actually outside the scope of the book. This happens after the book ends, but I think I included it in the in the afterward. Um, when you get married, you get like, you know, you have a travel pass. If you work as a flight attendant, you can fly for free. And depending on your seniority, you're often in, in first class. And, you know, your partner 
or your husband or your wife often also gets a travel pass. And when Pat's brother um, was very sick, she married his partner so that he could have the travel pass and that he could um, travel for free to, you know, for, for healthcare reasons uh, because he wouldn't have been able to, to afford it otherwise. And her supervisor at the time was like, even though Pat was an out lesbian at this point, um, her supervisor was so obtuse that he sent her a card saying like, Oh, congratulations on your, on your marriage. I'm so happy for you. Where is Pat today? And is she married? Um, she has a partner, a long-term partner, and they live in Texas. And it, it, at what point in the book does Pat make the biggest difference to the whole business of unions and changing the world of uh, flight attendants? Yeah, this really is the sort of the, the climax of the book when um, Pat and a, a group of other stewardesses make the decision that they want to leave the Transport Workers Union and they want to stop having their lives dictated by these older men who are not taking them seriously as workers. And instead, they are going to form their own union led by women, led by flight attendants, and they're going to do their own bargaining and their own negotiating. And it leads to a year of tension and infighting and battles um, between Pat and Tommy. Tommy, at that point, is the president of the American Airlines Flight Attendant Union. She wants to stay with the transport workers she thinks that there is strength in numbers. Being affiliated with big labor is something that's really going to benefit them. And she says, if we just stay in here, we'll be running the damn unions. While Pat thinks we're never going to get any power with these guys around. We need to take matters into our own hands. So they spend a year um, basically pushing back and forth. And in the end, there's a vote. And yes, then Pat leads the flight attendants into their own independent union um, led entirely by women. What surprised you the most in, as you were doing the research? Honestly, the most surprising thing, besides the requirements for being a stewardess, like the age requirement and the weight requirement, were some of the uniforms and some of the ads. Like, it was almost unbelievable to me that, first of all, that you could make women wear hot pants and, you know, then do all the work of a flight attendant um, in hot pants and go-go boots, but also like the way it was the exploitation of them as sex objects was, was so overt. Like there was nothing subtle about it at all. It was right out there front and center. It's like, it was really jaw dropping. And, and I tried to include as many of those ads as possible in the book. Cause I think they're just fascinating. You have a picture in the book of a older man kissing on the lips, Pat. And, and and what was that about? And and how long did that go on and why? This was a, yeah, this was another, this was actually a very surprising thing. This was extremely gimmicky, but for a short while at American Airlines, and I think at a couple of other airlines, they required that the stewardesses kiss the departing passengers on the cheek as they left the plane. Um, and this was just like a job. Now it was a job requirement. And the photo in the book, which um, you can see if you look at it, is... Pat, uh, kind of standing with her arms right down at her side, very rigid, very rigid. She's being embraced and kissed by this man who's like twice her age. And, you know, he, he doesn't know her. He's just taking advantage of the fact that they have this kissing requirement. Um, that didn't last very long. I think it lasted a few months because I think the stewardesses, like, they just wouldn't do it. It was just so horrifying in all the expected ways. But, yeah, that was absolutely like a, a very misguided and gimmicky uh, way to to try and hold on to those business passengers. You have a, a, a note and it's you know, you, you didn't make a big deal out of this. But as someone who has lived in this town of Washington, D.C. forever, it was I never heard it, never seen it. And it's about a, 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 a who went on to be a very famous senator and a, a, a night with Sonia. And his name is George Mitchell, uh, who was the majority leader in the United States Senate at the time. I think he was an aide to Senator Muskie, but I'm not sure he was at one point. What's that story? Um, yeah, when Sonia was trying to get a government job, she had to have a letter of recommendation. And she thought she didn't know anybody in government. You know, she thought she could get one from Muskie because she had heard him make a speech about welcoming immigrants and refugees. And she thought, oh, I'm a refugee. Like, maybe he'll write me a letter. And so um, she got in touch with Mitchell and he took her out one night and they went dancing and she was like, okay, are you going to get me that letter? And he says, okay, yes. But then he, he essentially, he propositions her. 
um, and she runs away. But then, then I thought this was an interesting part. She's in the taxi on the way home, and she's thinking, like, she's kind of kicking herself for not going up to the room with him. She's like, oh, people are sleeping their way to the top all the time, and this is how people get by, and why am I such a prude? And she was sort of beating herself up for not, uh, not going with the flow and getting the letter that way. But I think he felt guilty enough that he eventually sent her the letter, and then she got her job uh, at the EEOC. Talking about the Congress, what was the relationship of stewardess flight attendants with Congress and were they helpful in those days or not? Have they ever been helpful? <laughs> uh, they were not friends of the stewardesses. I will say that is that during the 60s, when the stewardesses were trying so hard to get rid of these age and marriage restrictions, they you know petitioned Congress for help, and there were hearings that they that Congress held over things like yeah the age restriction and the marriage restriction and age discrimination. Um, but the details of those hearings are also very depressing. You you would get a, a group of stewardesses in the room and then several congressmen sitting in front of them like a panel. And the stewardesses are making their case for why these rules are so sexist and they shouldn't be allowed. And the congressmen are essentially like oogling them. And one of them says to a stewardess like, oh, stand up so we can see the dimensions of the problem. And they're sort of falling all over themselves to do what they think is complimentary to the stewardesses, but it's actually just pure objectification. And just like the the other men in their professional lives, they're not really taking them seriously. And the end result of these hearings and meetings, whatever, is is zero. They they don't help the stewardesses at all in their fight. What about the relationships with the airline leaders? You have a quote in here from former CEO of American Airlines, Robert Crandall, referring to the stewardesses as dumb broads. Yeah, there's actually I have strong evidence that he used a worse word than that, but I substituted broads um, in that particular incident not to get the book banned. But yeah, um, Crandall was not a friend of the stewardesses. He was somebody who would bring in scabs if they went on strike. He was trying to, you know, he was not interested in in treating them as as professionals and as workers. And he they felt really disrespected by him. But I will say that a number of them have talked about how he came up with the American Airlines Advantage program, um, like their frequent flyer program. And they thought like he was actually a pretty good CEO and that that idea was a really good one. But I would say on a personal level, they hated him. What about the other airlines and the other leaders and their relationship? Anybody helpful to the flight attendants? No. And the thing I encountered most, I mean, my book is mostly focused on American Airlines, but one of the things in which the leaders of other airlines really kept appearing in was in a lot of homophobic language and homophobic slurs. And they would talk about when men were you know, legally required to be permitted to work as flight attendants, they were worried that there were going to be too many gay men working there. And they there are a lot of quotes in the book about like really homophobic quotes about how they don't want any any gay man working on board and like, this is not, you know, gay people don't have a job at Delta and this is not right for them. And United doesn't want any gays working on board. Um, it's pretty disgusting. So all the characters that you have, one of them that we haven't talked about is Charlie Pasciutto. Who was he? And, and you, I think you, if I remember is right, that Pat even went to his funeral and did a eulogy. <laughs> she did. Uh, Charlie Pasciutto was sort of, he's sort of the villain of the piece. He was the vice president at American Airlines for many years. He was essentially in charge of what we'd now call HR. Um, back then, I think it was employee relations. But he was the one who was bargaining with the stewardesses when it came time for a new contract. He was the one making decisions about their working lives. And he basically was, you know, he was a company man. He did whatever the company wanted him to do, which was to keep these, keep these young ladies in line. Um, to you know, push back when they wanted single rooms or higher wages or you know, longer skirts <laughs> or anything like that. And so he comes up again and again. He is really like their their enemy because he really is fighting them at, at every turn. But there's a point at which, as as the years go by and they, and they all get older, they sort of establish detente with him and they're like, okay, they they refer to him as Uncle Charlie. They joke around a little bit and they they really respected him as a man of his word. 
They said that even though they disagreed with him on almost everything, if he made a deal with them, they could rely on him to stick to the deal and to keep his word. And they, they respected him for that. As we wrap it up, uh, I, we haven't talked much about this at all, but the law and the change in the law, how much impact did that have on the women's ability to get things changed at the airline? And I'm thinking first and foremost about the civil rights law, Title VII, and how much did that help them and why? Yes, Title VII, as part of the Civil Rights Act, was was huge for them. They were really the first people to see how it could be used to fight sex discrimination. And the court cases they embarked on and the, the EEOC hearings they had, this all went on to establish case law, which is really like has helped women in sex discrimination cases ever since. Like this was really a landmark thing. They were kind of the first to take advantage of that. And that was absolutely um, like Sonia's decision at the EEOC was based on Title VII. Like this law absolutely changed everything for them. Um, it enabled them to to fight back against all these sexist restrictions. It was it was really life changing. What would you say has been the biggest impact of your book? Of my book. Um. That's a good question. I think that there are actually a lot of lessons that can be learned from the book. We're in a really interesting moment right now in the labor movement. You know, everywhere we look, Starbucks are unionizing, Amazon workers are unionizing, Chipotle workers are unionizing. Like we're at a really exciting moment for the labor movement in the United States. Something like this hasn't been seen in, in decades. Um, and I think there's like actually a lot of lessons that people who are organizing today and fighting to take back power from these big companies. I think there's a lot of lessons that they can take away from from the battles that the women in my book fought. Um, you know, the principles are, are still the same. And I, I think they're really powerful. When was the occasion that we went from calling them stewardesses to flight attendants? That was in 1971 or 72 when men started working on the planes. Um, so they could refer to them as like stewards and stewardesses, but it became, it was very awkward. And, you know, there's a, there was no one moment at which it changed, but it gradually became just flight attendant as a gender neutral term. Our guest has been Nell McShane Wolfhart, and the name of the book, The Great Stewardess Rebellion, subtitled. How Women Launched a Workplace Revolution at 30,000 Feet. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. 